Welcome to Rumike Talks podcast. I'm your host, Konstantin Starodetsky. This is a space where I interview professionals from the entertainment industry and discuss popular film-related topics with my co-host and producing partner, Romana Dinevska. Our goal is to help and motivate aspiring filmmakers to get their films made. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of the Rumike Talks podcast. Today we have a guest, Richard Haram. He is a producer, screenwriter and WGA member, also my former teacher at UCLA. He is currently an executive producer on HBO Max's show Titans. He co-created the TV series Miracles and The Gates for ABC. Mr. Hatton also written and produced episodes including Supernatural, Grimm, The Dead Zone, Witches of East End, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, and many, many more. He executive produced Sci-Fi's miniseries event The Lost Room, and his feature credits include Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, and The Mothman Prophecies. In addition, he is a contributing author to Inside the Room, writing television with the pros at UCLA Extension Writers Program. Please welcome Richard Haddam. Welcome, Richard. Thank you so much, man. It's good to see you again. Nice to see you too. It's been a while since the pandemic and all the classes that I took with you. <laughs> I know. Yeah. We had our class just before that. I've taught one more in person. I just finished it. But during during the lockdown, they asked me if I wanted to do it online. And I'm like, no, that's not as fun. I'll just wait until I can do it in person again. So took a couple of years off and then just started up again. Yeah, I miss your energy from the class. You know, every time I visit your class, I wanted to just go and start writing. And, you know, this document <laughs> that you keep promoting to us, like, write this document. What's the story engine and everything? Yeah, all of those things really inspire me to, like, write myself. Oh, good. I actually did write since then. I did write a, um, a several TV shows and I actually managed to sell one. What? To an uh, independent production company. Yes, yes. That's amazing. <laughs> what's happening? I mean, I don't know what's happening with it right now, but um, I actually did sell it, and it was like it's my first the first screen first TV show that I, I sold. <laughs> Congratulations! That's amazing. That a, a sale is a sale is a sale. I'm so happy for you. That's really wonderful. Thank you. So let's dive in into your life. I want to know what was the moment that inspired you to enter this whole entertainment industry, the film world? Well, it's funny that you ask that now because I'll tell you that um, February... Okay, so we're, we're recording this in February of 2023. Yeah. Okay? So if you go back 30 years, that was my first sale. <laughs> okay? So the first thing I ever sold was in February. It was February 23rd, 1993 and it was dark territory it was the uh you know die hard on a train movie that i wrote with matt reeves he and i went to usc film school together and then when we graduated we're like we gotta write something i know let's do die hard on a train and so <laughs> we had the greatest time but we we sold it you know that's a big moment that's and i had been trying to sell for 10 years at that point okay oh wow mm -hmm. now now again though factor in my age Made that sale at 26, started writing at 16. So go back 10 more years to basically February of 1983. And that's when I started writing, hoping I would sell something. I was a junior in high school. So that was 40 years ago. Okay, so now your question was, what was the moment that inspired me to do all this? And it's so funny because it's like, it, it's all this sort of, you know, the, these layers of, of wanting to do something in entertainment, some, some act of self-expression 
And when I was really young, a little kid, I wanted to be an actor. And then I, when I got older, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, and I did stand-up for a while. Mm, but nice. okay, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a crazy story. All right, love it. Because I had not done a lot of writing. Okay, I, I, it, before that, before mm-hmm. high school, not a lot of creative writing that wasn't an assignment. But when I went to high school, literally the first day I was at high school was the first day of auditions for the school play. And I was like, let me at it. So I auditioned, I got a part. And by the end of the first week of high school, I had 30 new best friends. And they were all the people who were in the show and all the drama kids. That was my tribe. I was so happy. It was during rehearsal for the play that we were doing, Inherit the Wind, my friend Chris Harville was out, uh, you know, like sitting in the theater area, and he was he, he was writing, and I wasn't needed for rehearsal at that moment. Maybe we were taking a break, so I walked over to him, and I thought he was doing homework. I'm like, what are you working on? He's like, oh, I'm writing a play, and it totally blew my mind. I'm like, wait a second, I'm 14, you're 15. What do you mean you're writing a play? You're not allowed to write a play? <laughs> You have to be like a grown-up or a professional or something. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, why? He's like, oh, I'm I'm writing it, you know, just I, you know, I'm always writing something, you know, writing comic books or doing something. I'm like, my God, that's crazy. Well, what is it? What's it called? And he said, Oh, it's called Auschwitz. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? He you're writing a play about Auschwitz? You're a 15-year-old from Alhambra, California. <laughs> What's going on? And he's like, yeah, I'm just, you know, and and it the the sheer audacity of it, the 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 sheer notion that he was just like, well, it's a period of history I'm interested in. I'm gonna write a play about it. The the sheer, I don't know if it's arrogance or chutzpah or just sort of like limitless thinking. He wanted to do it, he did it. Uh, a few months later, he was working on another play called God. <laughs> it was it was a big, it was like a 15-page monologue from God. <laughs> this tells you everything you need to know about Chris Harville. Anyway, we were good friends, but it was, in a way, his confidence and the notion that, you know, it's like, oh, that's right. You know, it doesn't take anything more than a pencil and a piece of paper, and I can write if I want. So for a while, I was like, I should write a play. I wonder what play I should write. I couldn't think of anything. And every night I'd go home and watch television. And then one day it just sort of clicked. I should be writing television. At that point, I had just started watching a show called The Mm A-Team, which was the greatest television show of all time. Yeah. (laughs) And and so all of those things came together. And so by, by, I guess, February of my junior year, I I decided, well, no one's going to stop me. And I know I can do it. So I'm just going to write an episode of the A-Team. <laughs> and then when it's done, I'll see what I can do with it. Maybe I'll sell it. I don't know. Quit high school. Go work in Hollywood. That'd be the greatest thing ever. That might be a very long answer to your question, mm. but that's that's how I got into it. Well, yeah, stories are the best. That's what makes it interesting. How did you get it? How did you start? You know, the first aspect uh, <laughs> that I wrote, I mean, right now, you pro- as you know, the, the specs are not that uh, hot as they used to be. But um, I did ri- write a spec to my favorite show, and it's uh, Mr. Robot. Oh. You know, but I mean, you cannot really do anything. You just use it to, to s- submit to, you know, those ABC competitions, NBC, and like all of those oh, yeah. uh, big studios, uh, contests, fellowships. I, I don't know where it will lead to, but the, this kind of like 
audacity to take <laughs> this masterpiece and then try to make something that you know done in the language that is <laughs> not your own. <laughs> well, you know, somebody said yeah. um, that all TV writing uh, is fan fiction, mm. and it's kind of true. And when I started, now you know, I wrote an episode of the A Team because I thought that's. I, you know, again, it was 1983. I was 16. I, you know, I knew nothing. The industry was different, and, and it didn't matter because I didn't know what that industry was, even as I was writing for it. But I just did what I wanted to do, and by writing an episode of an existing show, it's like I already had the characters, I had the mm-hmm. premise of the show, and a show like the A Team, the, the same kinds of things happen. So it's just like, okay, I, I, I a lot of it's already there. I just have to kind of add my stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, it's funny because spec uh, spec writing fell out of favor, but I think it's it's kind of coming back. There are some shows that ask for an original piece, but then they also want to see if you can write in the voice of another show because they're beginning to catch on to the fact that, well, if I hire you, I'm going to be asking you to write in my voice to gauge whether or not that'll be successful. Let me see if you could write in somebody else's voice. So that is, I, I'm I'm hearing that it's coming back a little bit. Yeah, well, it's always fun to write the show that you love because already, you know, like the hardest part is done. That it's all this development and the the characters. Yeah, that's that's the hardest part too when you're starting from scratch. And you know, the A Team is the show that I grew up. You know, with you know, I was just oh, a kid wow. and I was watching this uh, um, tube TV. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was reruns, you know, because it was in Russia and I was watching it in Russian. Imagine. Wow. Only when I came to America for the first time, I realized that every character, they have <laughs> their own voices and heard them for the first time. But the interesting thing is that some actors, I was like, oh my God, those are great actors. And why did why did they dub them? But then there were some others that were actually better <laughs> in Russian. Like the, the Russian actors who were dubbing them were like much better. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I love hearing those stories. What year was this? Around like 1998. That's yeah, okay. I was watching. Like there were all those shows that were just showing them on TV. The A Team, the Knight Rider, yes, and then yeah. the Quantum Leap. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. These were all well. Quantum Leap, I think, was late 80s, early 90s. A Team mm. was early 80s. So it was a little bit later, not too much, but yeah. Yeah, and the Under Siege, I also, <laughs> Dark Territory, I watched it in <laughs> Russian, you know, the Steven Seagal uh, has, uh, he actually, he is actually very popular in Russia, by the way, like his films, like all of his films, pretty much. Good. So I was watching it uh, with my with my father, <laughs> yeah, and he has his Russian you know, actor who <laughs> does his voice and all of that. It's amazing that you wrote the screenplay to this film. Like, who knew? Like, I didn't even know that I'm going to be here in America, but that I will meet the person <laughs> who wrote the movie. <laughs> it's it's just incredible. <laughs> it, it is very weird it, the way these things work out. We, you know, when when we sat down to write it, I will tell you, we were not writing a Steven Seagal movie. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we were writing a Harrison Ford movie. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a Bruce Willis movie. Like there, in the back of our mind, we were like, "Well, maybe this will be Die Hard Two or Die Hard Three or something. Who knows?" Mm-hmm. But uh, Steven Seagal was not on our list. <laughs> did you Did you get a chance uh, to be on set during the filming? No, we never went on set. Um, we We saw the set. There was one day when they weren't filming in Burbank that we went 
to the Warner Brothers lot. Actually got to go into the train car and kind of walk around. Mm-hmm. And that was a that was a really big moment. Um because and a lot of people describe this. I've heard other writers on on TV shows that I've done. You know, when you walk onto a set and this is something you've only pictured in your mind, and then you see it, and it's so clear that a lot of people spent a lot of time and money building something based on something you wrote on a piece of paper, you know, six months ago in television, maybe even six weeks ago. It's pretty intense. It's like, wow, it's really happening. Mm -hmm. Because it's strange when you're writing and you're trying, you're pursuing a career, it's all in your head and, and there's no real expectation that anything will ever happen. It's not like going to medical school and it's like, okay, well, I've got this equipment and there's a body. Maybe it's alive. Maybe it's dead. I'm going <laughs> to practice on it and operate on it. Oh, everyone's been to a hospital. It just all exists in your head. And then one day it's like, oh shit, it's happening. And there's a lot of people and it's all because of you. And man, that's an amazing feeling. <laughs> Do you have like the the movie that you like the most uh, that uh, was produced that you watched on the screen or like, on on TV screen? Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, it's Miracles. It's my first TV show, and that mm-hmm. was two thousand two, and that uh, was a show that I created. It was the first time I was hired to write a pilot because mm-hmm. before that, it had been you know doing film jobs first selling dark territory and then getting other assignments and then doing and then writing mothman and selling that mothman prophecies and having that get made and it was because of that abc well at that time the studio was called touchstone not abc studios but it was abc mm-hmm. disney and they brought me in and and we discussed this idea. They they were looking for something in the supernatural realm, and we talked about it. And and when that show got made, uh, we were very lucky. We got to do what we wanted to do. I mean, that that's a show that I look back on, and there are very few compromises. And there was a lot of lot of stuff, like just small things that that we wanted to do, just weird little idiosyncratic things that we wanted to have in the show, and they're in the show. You know, I mean, I cast, there were people that I cast, just friends of mine who were actors. And I was able to do that because 20 years ago, the amount of oversight that exists now in television production was just, I mean, didn't exist. If you were Mm -hmm. casting an episode of a network TV show, the network wanted clearance of maybe the top two or three guest stars. But after that, if there were characters who only had a handful of lines or they were only in one scene, they it was like, well, cast whoever you want. You're the showrunner. Cast who you want. That doesn't exist now. Um, in terms of how things were going to look, you know, what stories we wanted to tell. You know, at the time, we thought it was huge interference. It was nothing compared to what goes on now for network television and streaming. The oversight is to the degree that as a showrunner, almost all you're doing is interfacing with the studio and consistently reassuring them about some aspect of production, a script, a cut, a, you know, production design, performance, mm. casting, something they need to be assured is 
what they think it should be so that they may report to their boss and their boss can report to their boss. And everyone feels like, okay, we've all done our due diligence. Now, does it result in better shows, more successful shows? I don't know. But the job of showrunner is much different now and, and much harder because the amount of time spent just checking boxes for studio and network is much more than it ever was in the past. Do you think it happens because of the um, you know the metrics, online metrics, and and you know ratings on the web? Because before it was views, right on TV, and right now it's like some other metrics that like clicks, right. you know, or when you drop watching the show after first episode, something like that. No, I can tell you that the um, the reason it is that way is because of vertical integration. Mm. The fact that the the production entity and the distribution entity are all housed under an even larger entity that is basically a Wall Street business that has to, every three months, show that, oh, look, look, the little green arrow's going up. <laughs> and when that's the world you're in, it's a very different world than just, hey, we're here to make entertainment. You know, the world that you see, did you watch the show um, The Offer? The television show about the making of The Godfather. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. No, I've heard of it. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. But it gives you an idea of what it used to be like. You, you still had bosses that you were answering to, but the people you were answering to were all in the entertainment industry. And there was one person, it was a guy. <laughs> Spoiler <laughs> alert, it was a white guy. <laughs> and 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 you, you knew who that person was and you dealt with that person. It wasn't someone, it's like, I don't know, maybe they're here, maybe they're in another country. I've never seen them. When that was the world, it, it was a smaller world. And again, we're only talking about 20 years ago. And if you go back 10 years before that and 10 years before that, even more so. Now it's like, wait a second, am I working for Warner Brothers or HBO or Discovery? Am I working for the Home and Garden Network? What, what is going on here? Because there is such accountability to shareholders or you know a board, and and it's so large, everyone below that is terrified. And basically, unfortunately for them, because it's no fun for them, for the you know the network and the studio executives who are trying to interface with you on a creative level, but even they can't now because they're terrified. They're like, I have to create work to show my boss to prove that I'm not letting those creative people get out of control. And it just goes up and up and up. I don't think it results in better shows and it draws the creative people's attention away from pursuing the aesthetic that they're trying to achieve. And they spend more time just having endless presentation meetings mm -hmm. about, hey, here's what the set's going to look like. Is this okay? Here's what this is going to look like. Is this okay? And you spend more time preparing for the meeting than you do preparing for the actual show. Yeah. It, 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 it can get difficult. Now, everything that I'm talking about exists at the beginning of the show, all right? When you're doing the pilot, when you're doing the first season. Now, after the first season, none of that counts. You know, we were talking about Titans earlier. Mm -hmm. The first year of Titans, everything I just described and multiply it by five. 
Okay. The second year, 90% less. The third year, Mm -hmm. the fourth year, even less. Because by then, the ship has sailed. And unless something big comes up, there's no real reason to interfere. If you've gotten to a second season and then a third, they back off. What advice would you give for people who want to get hired and then want to have their first season done the way that they want it? How to navigate uh, sort of this tricky road? Luckily, the answer is the same answer it always is, which is know your show. Frankly, by the time you've written a pilot that has been greenlit, you've probably been through it 500 times. So by then, you do know your show and you know what's important about it in terms of, okay, look, you can negotiate these elements, but not this one. The character is this character. The relationship is this relationship. The tone is this tone. These are things we cannot change. You've got to have a little bit of courage to stand up for it because more and more the feeling is, well, maybe if I just do what they say, Mm -hmm. maybe they'll let the show live. But the fact of the matter is doing what they want not only doesn't ensure a, a greater chance of getting your show done, but it also, that's not what they want. Studios and networks, like they'll let you know when it's important. They'll let you know when it's like, no, we're casting this person, not that person. And then mm-hmm. you're kind of like, mm-hmm. well, okay. You know. Yeah, makes sense. It's your show. You, you can choose between these two people. But when they're giving you story notes, they actually, and it's hard to remember this sometimes, but they do want you to push back if something honestly is problematic. Look, a lot of times the notes you get make sense. On a certain level, you're like, well, uh, yeah, okay, we thought about that. I don't know. We just, we said no. Maybe you want it that way. Maybe we should do it. I don't know. The best thing I heard, and I listen, I never talked about this with studio executives or network executives until very recently. Hmm. And just within the last few years, I've had conversations where they've said, you know, we hate notes, phone calls. And I'm like, you hate notes, phone calls. We're the ones who hate it. We're the ones who are terrified that you're going to say everything we've done sucks and we're not allowed and you can't do it. And she said, no, no, we, we don't feel that way at all. We feel like you guys are aren't going to like our notes and you're going to think we're stupid or we got something wrong. And, and this one executive said, and sometimes showrunners are really mean and they, they treat us like, like we're idiots and it makes us feel terrible. And after, a, after, an, after we give notes, we have to take like an hour and go outside, have a cigarette and just recover before the next one. And I'm like, that's amazing. I had no idea it was so stressful for you. So we had this conversation and then this one executive referenced a showrunner. I'll mention their name because it's a good person and it's a good story. The showrunner's name is Jason Kadams. Hmm. He did Friday Night Lights. He's doing a bunch of shows on Apple TV now. He's done a lot of stuff. I mean, you can, you can look him up. This executive said, we love giving notes to Jason Kadams because he listens and he, he, he never says no. He just says, okay, okay, we'll take a look at that. Okay, okay, interesting. And it's just, it's very receptive. It's just, he hears us out. And then at the end, he says, okay, let me go, uh, let me go figure these out. And then he takes those notes. He goes to the writer's room and he says, okay, here are their notes. And then he just has a very open discussion with the writer's room. And then a few hours later, he calls the studio back and he says, okay, 
we love this note. We're doing it. We love this note. You really helped us. You're right. We figured that one out. We got it. This note, I don't think we're going to be able to do. And here's why. It's important for the episode to blah, 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 you know, fill, fill in the <laughs> blank. And they're like, beautiful. Thank you. Wonderful. Do you, you do you. That's great. <laughs> These notes aren't laws. It's not like if you don't do these notes, we're not filming the episode and you'll know when those notes are there. They'll say, look, we have a real problem. Otherwise they're just notes. They're questions and you address them or, or you don't. But if you can do it respectfully, you can actually get a lot out of the relationship with the studio and the network. If you see eye to eye at all, there actually is a way to make that relationship work. It's so funny. It's, it seems like it would be nice to have a kind of like a, a group therapy session between the executives and, and the writers, I'm sure, <laughs> <laughs> to, to find the proper channels to communicate, you know, so. <laughs> well, it takes a long yeah. time. And guys like Jason have been in the business for a long time and they've worked with a lot of people. And after a while, you're just like, well, oh, I remember you when we were both working at CW, you know, and then after a while, mm -hmm. you just... You just start having conversations and you're like, oh, you're not the principal and we're not the bad kid. We're all trying to do the same thing. And it's easy for the creator of the show to forget that the people at the studio and the network, they're fans. And, and the really nice thing is more and more, they're tipping that hand. At uh, Warner Brothers with Titans, every Notes phone call starts with, we're, we love the show and we're always so excited to get the script and find out what happens next. So it always goes right to the top of our stack. Now, maybe they're lying. I don't know. But it's an <laughs> awfully nice way to start the phone call. <laughs> and I think they are. I mean, they wouldn't be doing the job if they weren't interested in television and if they didn't love it to a certain extent. So yeah. if you can meet at that level, it, it, again, it can, be, it can be a really, really good, mutually beneficial relationship. So let's talk about Titans. How do you get from like sitting and writing screenplays, uh, selling them, getting on a, a smaller shows to getting to work at the Titans? The most common, ordinary way in the world. My agent at the time, WME, set a meeting and said, hey, there's this show called Titans. There's this new cable network called DC Universe. Go take a meeting. So I went, I met the showrunner, Greg Walker, and um, talked to him for about an hour. And I left that meeting thinking, oh, that, that went well, and he's a cool guy. And then about, a, I don't know, a couple days later, it was like, hey, they'd like to make an offer. I'm like, oh, great. So they made an offer, we made a deal, and a couple of weeks later, I was in the writer's room. Now, what I didn't know was, and I found out a couple of years later, Greg told me, you know, when you came in, I was no longer looking for anyone on the show. Because when you came in, there was only one slot left, and I had just filled it with the person who came in right before you. And you were the last meeting of the day, and I figured, well, I'll just talk to this guy. And by the end of the meeting, I'm like, oh, I want this guy. Not, I want the 5 o'clock meeting, not the 4 o'clock meeting. And so <laughs> if I hadn't come in, whoever that was before me would have been working on Titans. So somehow something happened, and I got lucky. I got really lucky because... I did four seasons of that show and <laughs> that's five years of my life. And I've never done four seasons on anything. Well, I think getting there, it might be luck, but staying there, I think it's, it's not just like it's the actual <laughs> work that you put in, in the first season. Okay. Well, yeah. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you about how 
the way Titans worked. Okay, so the pilot was written by Jeff Johns and Akiva Goldsman. Jeff Johns, you know, big guy at uh, DC, uh, writer uh, of, of comic books and um, creative guy, super genius. Akiva Goldsman, Academy Award winner, you know, wrote a lot of DC movies himself. So the two of them wrote the pilot to Titans. They're not writing partners. They each have their own businesses, mm-hmm. but they got together and worked on this. They knew they had other things that they were going to be working on. So they hired Greg Walker to be the showrunner. Greg Berlanti was crucial in the development of the pilot and, and sort of what it was going to be and what the show was going to be. And so he also has credit and it was through his company that the show would be produced along with Warner brothers. So with all of these things in place, we, the actual writing staff show up one day and there's Jeff Johns and there's Akiva Goldsman and there's Greg Walker. And now it's like, okay, but how are we going to do this show? Because Jeff Johns has one version of the show and Akiva has a slightly different version. So on Monday, you might be working with Jeff Johns and you might be coming up with ideas for episode two. And then on Tuesday, Jeff isn't there, but Akiva is. And Akiva's like, oh, that's all cool. Hey, what if we did it this way? And then by the end of the day, it's shifted. Mm -hmm. Then on Wednesday, Akiva's not there. Jeff Johns comes back in and he's like, well, what's all this? And we're like, oh, we, we developed all your ideas and further with Akiva and landed here. And he's like, oh, well, some of that's okay, but what if we do this? And then we go in a new direction. And then the next day, Akiva. So the first season, it was a little bit like, well, wait a second, what's going on here? And then then what eventually happened was there were certain episodes that were sort of more Jeff Johns episodes. And then there were certain episodes that were more Akiva episodes. But the writers did the writing and and then, you know, turned drafts into Greg Walker and Jeff Johns and Akiva Goldsman and notes were given and adjustments were made, which, by the way, is pretty much the way every television show gets done. We were lucky in that Jeff Johns and Akiva Goldsman were nice guys who didn't hate each other as far as we knew (laughs) (laughs) and were very respectful of each other, even if they had different ways of approaching things. No one was trying to take over the show. Everyone was respecting everybody else's contributions, primarily also the contributions of the actual showrunner, Greg Walker, whose responsibility it was to actually get these scripts going, get stories on the board, get writers assigned, and do everything else. Cast the show, hire department heads, costumes, super suits, (laughs) hair, makeup, Stunts, everything, a million things that a showrunner has to do. So all of these things in this weird sort of three-legged race, we, we, we moved forward and did the show. Now, I got really lucky because Greg Walker, God bless him, is the kind of showrunner who lets writers write. He doesn't take a script and rewrite it. And even in later years when Jeff Johns and Akiva were not as involved, he did not sort of emerge as, okay, now I'm going to take all the scripts and, you know, you'll write them, but then I'll rewrite them, you know, line for line. Hmm. He empowers writers to write. He hires people he trusts and he lets them do their job. This should be the rule in television. Often it is not. Hmm. Greg was a fan of my writing. Thank God. And so I got to write a lot and I got to write a lot of really interesting episodes. I got to write the Superboy episode. I got to write season openers and season enders. Jeff Johns was also a supporter of mine early on, and I didn't know him. 
you know, early on, he was like, mm, yeah, this is good. Yeah, yeah, you do this episode, do that episode. So I got to do a lot. And that's all a writer wants to do is write. That's my favorite part. I'm not interested. I've never wanted to be a director. I just want to write. So from mm-hmm. season one to two to three to four, I really got to write a lot and and write stuff that I loved and cared about and and got to see those episodes produced as written. And so for me, Titans was a gift. And those four years were the best I've ever had. I've had a good time working on shows that I've created, but in a way, this was even better because I just got to write and didn't have to worry about all the other stuff. <laughs> so when you work as a staff writer on a show, what does your day look like? Like you wake up at 7 a.m., let's say, and what happens next? <laughs> oh, God, no. What? <laughs> What are you talking about? 7 a.m. You wake up at 7 a.m. if you're going to go work out. That's what you do. You wake up at 7 a.m. if you have a child that has to be dragged out of bed and sent to school. Work on a TV show does not start at 7 a.m. Work on a television show typically starts at 10 a.m. That's when the room starts. And this is back when we were meeting in person. Now it's like this a lot. It's on, you know, Zoom Mm -hmm. or on something like this. You usually work from, I would say, 10 to 6 is a normal day. Hmm. You show up, you sit around a conference room table, and you simply, you're, you're building a building. You're building Legos. The story are Lego bits all over the table, and you're just grabbing them and trying to fit them together in different ways. You remember the class. Yeah. You start big and work little. Okay, it's episode seven. What's episode seven about? Mm-hmm. Is it following right on the heels of episode six? What bills do we have to pay from episode six? Well, we ended on a cliffhanger. Now we got we to gotta answer those questions. And by the way, what's happening in episode eight? We got to make sure we get there. How far down the road to episode 12 is episode seven going to get us? So there's some plot concerns. Okay, what's actually happening with our big stories? What's happening? Then the very next question after that is, What's happening for the characters? Where are they? Who's losing confidence in their abilities? Who's kind of just powering up? What relationships are building? Which ones are disintegrating? You know, what what are the core conflicts for our main character? What challenges are they facing in this particular episode? How can we design the episode to throw challenges at our lead actor and the rest of the cast that will challenge them at the place they're at in the season? And that can take a while. That part can take days and days. Yeah. You may go a week and not put a single word on the whiteboard. You're just tossing around ideas, trying to kind of come up with a shape. And maybe by the end of a week, you've got something. And then you start like, okay, so now we kind of know what the characters are going to do and what the episode's going to be about. All right, let's go to the board. All right. Well, we know where the episode's going to end. It has to end here. Okay, so let's write that at the very end of Act 4. This thing happens. And then it's like, and we know how it's going to start. Okay, well, if we know how it's going to start, we know how it's going to end. All right, what's going to be, you know, end of Act 2 is probably going to be when this thing that we've talked about last week, that cool beat where crazy shit happens. Okay, that's probably around the end of Act 2. And then you're literally just like putting puzzle pieces. It's like, well, that one's probably, that's a third act beat. Well, that one's got to be, let's start that in the first act. Let's, you know, that, that relationship, that runner, that B story, that's got to start in act one. Okay, let's, let's kind of put that up. Sometimes if you've got a lot of different storylines, you'll just write out the beats of the storylines and you won't even integrate them yet. It'll be like, okay, the story between Dick and Corey, it's 
let's just write out those beats. And then you write them out and it's like, okay, that's going to be about eight or nine scenes. And those will be distributed from act one to act four in some manner. And then you just start to, and you do it over and then then you start getting things put in and you start weaving the storylines together. And pretty soon that whiteboard is all filled up. And then you bring in the showrunner and you go, okay, here's what we've got. Now, of course, you've been updating him or her they know what's going on, but now you're actually saying, here are how the scenes play out. This scene plays into this scene, which goes into that scene, which goes into that scene. End of act one. You know, you take him, he listens and then we'll give notes and go, okay, this is all really great. I think we got to move everything up though. I think we're waiting way too long for what happens in act three. I think a lot of your act three beats are actually going to happen in act two. And then I think you, and you've just got too much stuff. Pull that out, pull that out. You've got plenty and you know, blah, blah, blah. But literally, your day in the room, that it, that's what you're doing. And the minute a writer is assigned that episode, the minute your boss says, okay, this looks good, what's on the whiteboard, acts one through four, it all looks good. Um, Constantine, you're writing the episode, turn that into an outline, get out of here. You're like, great. <laughs> you go home, you're going to spend the next week possibly writing an outline. The rest of us who are left in the room starts mm-hmm. over again. What's episode eight? What's going to happen? What needs to happen? So, what builds? So you mean that uh, the person who gets to write the episode, he can just go and write it wh- wh- wherever he wants to write or she wants to write? The understanding is that that person is allowed to leave the room. They're mm. allowed to go take a week or two weeks and just work on the outline and then the script. Mm-hmm. And and if you want, that can occupy all your time, and that's okay. And and it depends on the show you're on. For this show, for instance. I typically wouldn't leave the room that much. Sometimes I'd spend the morning, like from 10 o'clock or whenever I started writing until Mm -hmm. lunchtime, I would work on the outline. But then in the afternoon, I'd go back in and hang out in the room and, you know, help them break the next episode because I was upper level. And for a lot of the time on Titans, I was essentially the number two. I was never, it wasn't like that was on, you know, my door or something, but it was sort of like, (laughs) I took that on. I was like, okay, I'm working on my thing, but I want to be aware of what people are doing, you know, and Mm -hmm. I want to keep up more and more lower levels are doing the same thing. And it's smart. If you can work at night, work early in the morning and then show up in the room. And it'll be like, whoa, what are you guys doing? I thought you were on script. Oh, we are. We finished a draft of the, uh, I'm talking in the voice of a writing team. <laughs> the person might say, oh yeah, I worked on it this morning, finished the outline. Now I'm here to help you. And it's like, whoa, this person's a superstar. They're really working hard. That's a great way to do it. It's a great way to approach the job. It seems like a fun process if you if you love writing. You, know? you, you come, you get to share ideas and then come up with something That everyone accepts, you know? It's the greatest. It is the greatest. If you are the kind of kid who, you know, spent recess putting on a play (laughs) and just like grabbing your friends and going, let's do a show. If you spent any amount of your childhood just wanting to collaborate with other like-minded friends to create something, a play a newspaper, a skit, a talent show, any of that stuff. That is what I did as a child. That's the only time I did not feel terrible. (laughs) And I am lucky enough to now do that for a living. Every day, I just get together with smart, funny, creative people 
And that's all we do all day long is, okay, well, well, here's an idea. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And we just, I mean, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> so apart from writing on the TV show, on the Titans, what are the most memorable moments that you can share or, you know, perks that you got from working on Titans uh, or maybe people <laughs> who you met? <laughs> right. I, I worked with every single cast member mm. on Titans. I got to, you know, Joshua Orpin, who plays uh, Superboy. I wrote the episode that introduced him. And so I was there with him the day he showed up in the offices, the day he was getting fitted for his outfits, the, you know, his very first day on set. I was there the whole time. It was, it's really fun and exciting working with someone when it's like, wow, this is, you know, it's like this is our creation between myself as the writer and then the director and you know, everybody else. And then, you know, you, the actor personally, just in terms of the process, I feel that I'm doing a lot less. Once I'm on set, there's a lot of people who have jobs that are more urgent than mine. Yeah. I'm there. And if I, if, if I notice like, well, wait a second, wait, that there's a problem with this set or, Ooh, that's the wrong prop. I can speak up, but that's rare. That usually mm -hmm. does not happen. And typically I'm not really interacting with the actors on set i'm not walking up to them and going okay do it again but sadder <laughs> you know that's that's the director you and, and if i have a note i tell the director and the director tells the actor mm -hmm. the number of dinners i've had with directors throughout my career um after you know after a day uh, i did a show in shreveport louisiana so mm -hmm. when i was there you were pretty landlocked And there were a lot of nights where, you know, we'd, we'd shoot from seven in the morning to seven at night and then cast members and the director would all go out drinking. And this may be the only time I ever did that on a show because no one had anywhere else to go. No one was going home. We were just going to the comfort inn. So, um, there was a, that, that felt like very collegial in a way. And that was really fun. Yeah. Working with great directors and great actors. And that's the nice part. Again, for me, I don't want to direct. I never, ever, ever want to direct. Directing is a separate skill set, And I have immense respect for the people who can do it and do it well. I'm happy to let them do it. And I'm happy to watch them shine. <laughs> so far we talked about, it seems like you have a lot of great opportunities coming at you and it seems like it was flawless. I think that one of the most important things in our life is the failures that we face. So are there any failures that you faced that shaped who you are or that made you think about the world in a different way? Um, yes. I'm, I'm going to define our terms here. I'm not going to say, you know, I've had shows, I've created shows that have been canceled. Mm -hmm. That's not a failure. That's just part of the business. Mm -hmm. It's not even bad luck. That's just, you know, that's just life <laughs> in the big city of television. Yeah. Bad luck is when you've got a number one show on television and your lead actor gets hit by a bus. That's bad luck. <laughs> okay. Bad luck isn't you premiere, the numbers aren't great and they cancel you. That's happened to me. I've been on shows where it's happened to the creator and I'm just, you know, a writer on the show. What you want to be able to do is take every experience and sort of go, wait a second, what, what did I think was going to happen? I'm going to go way earlier in my career and say that I used to think that simply meeting someone or creating some weird situation was going to lead to my career happening. You know, if I could just get this script in the hands of that person. And there were, there were times where I did. And I will tell you 
it never worked. There was never a time when that lottery ticket paid off. The only thing that ever paid off was work. Yeah. And, and when something doesn't sell, you, you keep going. The general lesson of not selling something or not getting the job is evaluate what you could have done differently, if anything, and then get back to work. Part of that is also realizing when there is nothing you could have done. There's an illusion of control, and I think for writers especially, they like to cling to things like, well, I'm going to, you know, next time I'm going to do it differently. See, the, the reason it happened was because of this, so next time I'm going to do that. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe not. You can only control so much. And if you're going to expend a lot of energy, expend it creating the script and not trying to think around too many corners. But when you're writing, write directly at the heart of the reader. If you're writing comedy, really make sure it's funny. Show it around, you know? <laughs> Get the funniest people you know to read it and help you with it. If, you, if you're trying to make it scary, if you want to write a scary pilot, a scary movie, it should be scary on the page. The experience of reading it should mimic the experience of watching the eventual show. Yeah. That's where your time is best spent. I'll, I'll give you another lesson, but it's not based on a failure. All right. The lesson is be kind. <laughs> there is no one who is beneath your kindness. I'm talking about assistants. I'm talking about every person on the crew. I'm talking about everybody in the writer's room, support staff. And I'm talking about the people above you. Obviously, your, your bosses and the studio people and network people. A lot of TV writers, I've noticed, like to adopt a persona of martyrdom. We are the beleaguered. We are the ink-stained hacks. We are the whipping boys of the industry. We don't get the glamour of the actors and the directors. And our hearts are ripped out every time we turn in a script. Okay, sometimes, maybe. But you know what? Talk to your family. I talk to my brother and my cousins. Guess what? They don't like their jobs and they're miserable. <laughs> they have terrible bosses, horrible hours, and it breaks their heart. And they're not even doing what they wanted to do with their lives. People talk about Hollywood like it's uniquely difficult. It isn't. You're doing what you wanted to do. At least you're dealing in that world. And when you have successes and failures, it's within the world you wanted. When you're succeeding and failing in a business that you just happened into that you don't care about, then who cares? You know, the successes are like, well, great. You know, we sold another object, you know, mm -hmm. and the failures are like, why do I even care? And again, I'm in my fifties and my contemporaries who are working jobs, they don't care about, they really don't care. And they're just, they're looking at an X on a calendar five years from now when they can retire. Whereas when you're doing what you want to do, that is a gift and don't ever forget it because you, you know, again, no one says you get this job forever. Enjoy it when you've got it, be kind and keep, keep moving forward and, and don't, don't fall into the, my life is a burden because you can start believing that and it makes a really good life a lot less fun. And then why are you doing it? Yeah. Feature films versus TV shows. Which one you think is better as a job, as a writer, let's say, and how do you see the future of both? Uh, TV shows are better than movies. 
If you're all a right. writer, TV shows are better than movies. That's all there is to it. I'm sorry, you know. If you're look, if you're a writer director of feature films, whether they're massive like Matt Reeves, like my buddy who's <laughs> writing Batman and f- directing Batman, that's great. It, or or you're an independent filmmaker, you're working on a very much smaller scale and you're controlling everything and you're writing and directing, that's great. <laughs> but if you're a writer, you want to be working in television because you're you're writing a lot, you're writing different things, it's moving fast. You're getting exposure in every other aspect of production that you could possibly be interested in, and there's room for you to go. If you want to also direct or you want to produce, you want to do other things, great, do it. But in terms of actually the, of, of the writing, boom, boom, boom. It, it, it moves fast, and it's fun. And you're doing it with a group of people. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. I wrote feature films. I thought I was going to do that for the rest of my career. It's lonely. You're alone. You can you can turn in on yourself like Jack Torrance in The Shining, you know. I'd rather put on a play. I want to yeah. I want to get be with a group of people and go. What are we doing today? You know, it's like gambling. I don't want to be at a slot machine. I want to be at the craps table. I want to be with the other people. You know, come on, let's all do this. We're all gonna win. Come on. <laughs> yeah. No. What's the future of these things? Yeah. Okay. That's all we talk about now. <laughs> I had lunch today with a writer friend of mine. All we did was talk about what's going on in the business right now. What the hell? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is all we talk about. Feature films, I don't know, because I haven't been working in that field, so I don't know. But in a way, it's not that much different in, in terms of the larger industry. Television mm-hmm. is now the big question is, oh my God, all these streamers, how are they going to make money? They've got, they've got too much product. Oh no. You know, and there's, a, there's only a limited number of people who are ever going to subscribe to these services. What are we, network TV is dead. And what are we going to do? And it's so funny because you've got streamers who are pulling content off their platforms and then raising their prices. Hmm. And you're like, what's going on? It's like, well, we've got to make more money this quarter. And we can't be paying out residuals, so we've got to get this stuff out of there. And then it's like, but wait a second. That's like a, a supermarket pulling food off the shelves. I mean, you're a supermarket. People go there to get food. Wow, oh, there's too much TV now, you know, and we're, we're going through a slump in the industry. But none of it is consumer-driven. Consumer demand is still high and always has been. If they're making less shows... It's not because consumers are consuming less shows. They're not. It's because it's become too expensive within the streaming model to produce the number of shows to feed that demand. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're subscribing to Netflix and Netflix has 100 shows or 200 shows, it doesn't matter. So they're going to try to find the minimum number of shows they can have. Ultimately, that doesn't make sense because there's still a desire for more hours of television. How do you do that? Well, you do it like network TV does it. You sell ads. (laughs) So you'll notice now that a lot of streamers are suddenly having, you know, ad tier options. It's like, okay, no ads costs you $18. With ads, you only pay $14. Fine. Do whatever you want. Turn streaming back into network TV. The fact of the matter is, and, and the other problem is, there's, there's, there's nowhere else to sell it. If Netflix makes a show, they can't now sell it into syndication. They made the show. It's their show. Here it is. And that's it. <laughs> the other thing I think you should do is regulate and antitrust it and break up the monopolies and separate production from exhibition 
and have a healthier gene pool of many, many studios and many, many exhibitors. And that's how you do it. And then that competition allows people. And it's like, for the consumer, you're like, well, I know, but I don't want to have 15 different streaming services. And, and it's tricky because now the technology has outpaced our ability to figure out how to monetize it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't change the fact that people want to be entertained. And if they're not watching TV, they're going to go listen to this podcast yeah. or one of the other 10 billion podcasts and they'll listen <laughs> yeah. to them. Do you think it will ever happen that it will get regulated <laughs> the way that you hope it will? I don't know. I don't know. It, it's um, since uh, the 80s with, uh, with Reagan, r- regulation is now a bad word, except regulation is what allows me to drink the water that comes out of my faucet, not worry about it, and <laughs> eat a burger and not worry about it, uh, and get on an airplane and not worry about it. So I'd you know, breathe air and not worry about it. So I think as human beings, you know, one of the, it's funny, one of the questions you had on your um, sort of like, well, here's some things we might talk about. And if, you know, if aliens came down and, you know, questioned you and you could change one thing, what would it be? And I, I, I think the challenge human beings face is remembering that we're all human beings and every endeavor should be approached from the standpoint of in what way does this serve humanity and in what way is it humane? Mm-hmm. Another thing, a, f- a friend of mine is always terrified about what's coming next and, you know, with good reason, AI. Everyone's like, oh, AI is going to ruin us. AI, pretty soon mm-hmm. AI is going to write all the TV shows and we're all going to be mm-hmm. out of work and we should just go jump <laughs> off a bridge. I'm like, you know, not worried about that yet, but that's all anyone talks about. When they talk about AI, they talk about AI is going to write things. It's going to, we're going to make it be just like people. We're going to, and and it's going to think like people and it's going to make decisions and, and, and it's going to replace us, Hmm. but we're the ones creating it. And if it's so bad, why are we creating it? You know what you don't hear about when you talk about AI? No one says, what's AI doing to cure cancer? Yeah. How do we take AI, which could be a boon to humanity, and direct it at the problems we have as humans? Feeding people, clean water, you know, <laughs> ethical approaches uh, in business and government, curing disease. When is AI going to work on that? That's the <laughs> conversation. I don't want to hear about, oh, no, AI is going to write music and TV and we're all out of jobs. Fuck that. We're in control of the AI. Let's figure out how to make it work for us in a way that serves humanity. That's all we've got. Why are we creating fake humanity? We don't even like the humanity we've got. We're all people. And as Charles Dickens says in his great novel, A Christmas Carol, we are all fellow passengers to the grave. We are not bound on other journeys. Every last one of us is going to die. We're just here for a little while. How can we figure out a way to make that the top priority, to make that interval between whatever was before and whatever is coming next work for all of us? So you would say that would be your think that you would change this one thing <laughs> if you were an extraterrestrial <laughs> from a perfect world because <laughs> there's like a list of things but if you were to pick one what would be the one thing that you would change 
if you were a being coming from another world that is perfect. Well, now I want to make a joke about, you know, traffic or something. But um, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, look, I'm the wrong guy to talk about, you know, meeting people, you know, uh, me- meeting aliens. I can show you my bookshelf over there. I got about 900 books about uh, UFOs and uh, everything else. Uh, I don't, let me, I'll answer your question this way. I don't think they're here to help. <laughs> No, but I'm trying to put you in the mind of the the extraterrestrial. Like, if oh, you see. were I'm the, the extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial. Yes, I come yes, here. Yes, yes. I have power. Mm-hmm. Yes. Boy, you really want me to answer this question, don't you? Boy, I'm, <laughs> I've okay been waxing philosophic for ten minutes, and you're not letting me off the hook. All right, goddamn it. <laughs> what would I fix? Well, I in, in a way it would re, it would relate very much to what I was talking about before. It it would be addressing addressing true equality. Humanity is involved has evolved physically and and I think we have evolved mentally and emotionally and I I have to believe we're getting to a point where the pure tribalism that seems to rule so much of the world will will ultimately begin to fade because it doesn't really have a lot to back it up except lowest common denominator thinking and if there's a way to approach other human beings without fear, we can kind of get to that Star Trek world where it is the true meritocracy. And beyond that, it's even further down a line of, if I'm not afraid, it becomes very easy to help you, whoever you is. And I am not threatened by your need. If there's a way to help humanity advance even a little in that direction, that is what I would change if I came here as an alien. That's my answer to your question. Next question. <laughs> All right. Well, we're coming to the end of the episode. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that I miss or anything you'd like to share, a new book, a new show, anything? For the fans of Titans, they uh, we know that the show will not be continuing now into a fifth season. That was a actually a quite recent development. What we do have are six final episodes that I believe HBO Max is going to start airing in April. I don't have an exact date yet. For those fans who have been with us from the beginning or are just now consuming the first three seasons and and the first half of season four and you're, and you're excited, that's great because these final six episodes, I think they're going to kind of hit you right in the heart and they're they're going to address things that have been on your minds. And I think you're going to go away happy. I think you'll like where we're going to get. I know I do. So I would say to anyone within the sound of my voice, catch up on Titans and then get ready for the final six episodes coming up in the spring. And meanwhile, I'm working on a few things. Um, there's a, a several development projects that I'm working on with with other writers uh, where I'm, I'm teamed with them either as a co-writer or as an, a, sort of an overseeing producer that are moving forward. God willing, we get through contract negotiations in May and there is no strike uh, and we can continue having fun unimpeded with fair compensation. We will, uh, some of those projects will come to fruition. So that's the stuff I'm looking forward to. Nice. And where uh, can people find you online? Uh, Any social media that you're present? Boy, barely and less and less. (laughs) I'm not on Facebook, Mm -hmm. will not be on Facebook. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter for the time being, it's not as much fun as it was. It's kind of a dumpster fire of 
uh, confusion. I mean, the people, the people that I follow, I can't even. I, I don't see them in my feed anymore. I have to like, mm. I have to go searching for. It's like, oh, what, what is this person saying? What is this person saying? They're just. I don't. I don't know why I'm getting the stuff I'm getting in my feeds, but whatever. Anyway, Twitter. If you want, if you want to follow me, go to Twitter. <laughs> uh, I might. I might start up on Instagram. I might start up on Spoutable, but that's all in the future. Instagram mm-hmm. is too confusing. You young people <laughs> and your photographs. I can't do it. So we'll see. Uh, but that's where you can find me. All right, we'll put the links in the show notes. So. People can check out your work and your Twitter. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So now we come to the end of the episode. And this question that I ask everyone is the obsession of the week. So for me, for example, this week, it's a bird feeder, a plastic bird feeder that you, uh, you put, <laughs> that you mount on your window. It has like four suction cups you can mount and it's translucent so you can see through the window and see the birds uh, eating your food that they put for them. <laughs> That's amazing. And so what is your obsession? Um, it could be anything. It doesn't have to be related with TV world or anything creative. Something that you've been really obsessed with this week. Oh, God. It's so funny. I just automatically assumed you meant like TV shows and stuff like that. But um <laughs> It could but, be too. Uh, mm-hmm. Wow, uh, I love that bird feeder. Uh, uh, put put that in the show notes. I want to link to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what yeah, I'm gonna put oh, I'll give you two obsessions. Okay, okay. This is so stupid. Oh my god, this is so dumb. My friend Larry uh, from high school, who I've been friends with for over forty years. When we get together, I mean, I try to be stay in somewhat decent shape. But when Larry and I get together. It's junk food and candy and cookies. And he's a connoisseur of this stuff. Mm. If there's like a new flavor of Captain Crunch, he's like, we got to try it. And we're in our 50s and we're still acting like we're in high school. But that's okay. That's what, that's what a lifelong friendship is about. Anyway, it's not a new product, but uh, recently uh, I bought him, uh, I came over and I, I brought him a box of the white chocolate covered Oreos. So it's an Oreo cookie that's been <laughs> dipped in white chocolate. And he's like, he's like, oh, that's been around. I'm like, yeah, but I don't remember ever trying it. He's like, well, let's do it. So I try, you know, I want to hate it so bad and I can't. It's just the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> it's wonderful. Nice. So I would, I would recommend that. But I'll recommend one more thing because I'm excited because it's the beginning of the year. It's typically a time when I read a lot of new books and so I want to give a shout out to a book I read. It's not a new one. It came out, I think, in 2019, but it's great. It's called Ninth House by Lee Bardugo. I've been scoping it out and I'm, I'm going to read it. Maybe I'll buy it. I don't know. And I finally, it came out in paperback uh, in January. So I finally bought it, read it, loved it. It's it's a great piece of fantasy genre, but but very real world based, which is my favorite kind. And um, And I mention it now because the sequel just came out. So now it's like, oh, okay, great. Now I can go right into the sequel. The sequel is called Hell Bent. Um, but anyway, it's Lee Bardugo, Ninth House and Hell Bent. I haven't read Hell Bent yet. I'm excited to, but Ninth House is wonderful. So that's, that's an obsession. And I'll show you one more. I've got the book right here. Uh, <laughs> do you know what this is? I want, <laughs> I want my MTV. <laughs> that's right. This is my generation. This is a this is a 500 page oral history of of MTV, and 
it, this is comfort food. This is, this is just potato chips on a page. <laughs> I could not be happier to read about a simpler time when a bunch of crazy people were like, hey, shouldn't there be a channel that just shows videos? And I wish there still was. I tell you, if they just reran MTV, just literally reran it, I, I, I would never stop watching. That w- I buy a special TV. It would be in my house. <laughs> it would be on 24 hours a day. And it would always be showing me the first three years of MTV. Wow. That's a lot of obsessions this week. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. All right, Richard. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to Rumike Talks podcast. You can find the show notes at rumike.com. I'm your host, Konstantin Staradetsky. My producing partner, Rumena Dinevska. See ya.